Business is simple. It's just not easy. We focus on three things to help you run and grow your business more easily. Talent, sales, and how to scale. Can it be that simple? Talent. Develop a robust recruiting, vetting, and training process to help capable people and then help them to become who and what they want to be. Sales. Have a logical go-to-market strategy. Build the sales and marketing structure and plan around it and then attack and execute the plan with fanatical consistency. Scale. Know where you're going, why you're going. Share with others why they would want to join you. Be clear on who's allowed to join you and what they'll need to do to stay on board. Anticipate roadblocks. Avoid them before you get stuck. And then when you do hit one, and you will, stay calm, problem solve, and find resources to get unstuck. Sounds simple, right? Simple to understand, but not easy to do. Join us as we focus on the tips and tricks and hacks for running a profitable, hyper-growth business. We'll share real-world horror stories and celebrate the victory sagas that will inspire you. This is the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. everyone. This is Brian Whittington with the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. Today, we have Jason Dorfman from Orem on the line with us. And the reason I reached out to Jason is he had a really good article that he wrote about CEOs and, and the requirement to really get the sales development program up and rolling. What should you outsource? How should you automate? And really, the pitfalls behind it. So I'm really excited to have you on the, Jason, or on the show, Jason. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian. Appreciate you uh, reading the article. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the reason that I wanted to have you on is because it really spoke to me. And and so, you know, you go through it and we'll um, link it in, in, in the podcast here whenever we push this out. But you really laid out the the fact, and one of the reasons I started up this company, Jason, is so so many good entrepreneurs, really good programmers, really good engineers, you know, software engineers. They have a good viable product, and they found that oh my goodness, this sales thing isn't quite as easy. It's not build a better mousetrap and they'll come kind of thing. It's competitive. It's loud out there, and so they would hire really bad salespeople really bad VPs of sales, and then they would just destroy the company, burning money, burning runway, and an otherwise viable business goes under. And it just frustrated me to no end. So that's one of the reasons that we started up our company. So I really appreciated the article. But I guess one of the top questions that we always ask, Jason, is, you know, what makes you an expert in this? I mean, why should we listen to you? Because there's lots of people out there saying, hey, do this, do that. This is the secret uh, secret sauce, magic bullet. You do this, you'll be successful. So I guess, you know, why should we listen to you on this topic? Yeah. So I think I've built up a unique perspective over the years, just having worked in, in sales development. I started off my career in 2010 as a sales development rep okay. um, up to being an account executive at a company called RightScale. Um, end up leaving there to move to Silicon Valley to start my own company, end up in a, a small aqua hire was not particularly successful. And in the aftermath of that, I was kind of figuring out, you know, should I go back to my sales career full force or should I go back into the entrepreneurial world? And I got really the best of both worlds. And I got hired as the first sales slash business hire at Rubrik. I was the 12th employee there as myself, the CEO of the founding engineering team. 
and then stayed there for about six years until we were 1,700 employees. Wow. And at that company um, built out our worldwide inside sales team and then later our corporate sales team. And through that, just got to observe, you know, just a lot of different things, learned a lot of, uh, you know, hard lessons, did some things right. And then, you know, starting Orem, which is a company in the sales development space, we make it easier for reps to get into instant live conversations with their target prospects. That gave me a whole another perspective because I started to see all of the different sales development organizations outside of my own. And so I think all of those experiences put together have, have given me some some viewpoints, I think, that are contrarian and just ways that I think about sales development in general. And I think that there's a ton of room for improvement here and a, a lot of opportunity as well. Well, I love contrarian. So let's let's hit on the contrarian. So you've built it ground up, you know, employee 12 to a, a massive size company. You're now building out net new in a sales enablement tool. And that space is getting pretty loud as well. Um, whether it's outmatch, whether it's uh, sales, uh, sales loft, or you name it, there's a bunch of them out there uh, from an email approach to dialing approaches. So talk to me a little bit about why, how did you create Orm? I mean, what was the idea behind it? Yeah. So I think it's important to remember, you know, five or six years ago, especially when I was managing a large-scale sales development team, the whole sales acceleration space was really a collection of widgets. And now you're seeing these billion-dollar companies emerge like Outreach and Gong and hopefully Orm in the, the near future. Because I think technology has gone to the point where we're looking at all these repetitive tasks that we're doing in the workplace and we're automating them with AI, machine learning, and other tools. And that's a really big opportunity for digital transformation because humans are incredibly expensive. And if you look at the amount of money that's going into sales and marketing, how much of it is really spent having quality interactions with your customer base and how much of it is grunt work that we can use software to solve. So I think that's been the driving undercurrent behind all of these companies, including Orem. Orem specifically, you know, the, the idea really sprang from, you know, when I was managing an SDR team at Rubrik, you know, my reps, I was hiring these kids, you know, some of them might have been like a rower from Princeton or these really smart, high quality people, you know, right out of college. And then I would have them sit there and make 100 calls, three or four people would pick up, one would begrudgingly take a meeting and it just seemed like an incredible waste of time. And all the meanwhile, I was checking out all these next generation tools and it seemed like they were solving everything except for that core problem. And so when I looked at the companies that were trying to solve this, a lot of them were very old school. They're very expensive. They were really just outsourced services, and there was no technology company that was taking this um, head on. So that was really the original inspiration for Orem. And I think later on, we realized you know, this opportunity to partner with the rest of the ecosystem, people like Gong and Outreach, and really build this next generation stack which is what people are looking for to drive more efficiency and speed into their SDR organizations. So who does this really work for? I mean, is there a, a, a typical type of company that we have to do? Do you have to have a huge target market? I mean, what's the ideal um, user of this type of platform? Because, I mean, you're talking a lot of outreach in a short period of time. Yeah, so like our initial segment is about 100 to 1,000 employees, specifically if they're an outreach or a sales loft customer, just some evidence that they're starting to adopt these next generation tools. Um, 
we are moving up market rapidly, and some of our you know best trials are with bigger companies because they tend to have much better data. Um, obviously, uh, being a small startup, going through the procurement process, those longer deal cycles are, are harder for us, but that's absolutely where the product is moving to. Um, we do have um, some smaller customers, some one-man bands that want to, you know, that have very little resources and want to do a lot. But I think that the real uh, benefit is for someone that has maybe a, a five-person SDR organization um, on up. And, you know, the other requirement, too, is that they have, you know, they have to have pretty good data um, to call. They have to have a culture of cold calling that, you know, they have to look at the phone as a main tool for outbound. And I think some customers are, are, are doing that better than others. And that's something that, you know, we're kind of coaching them on. I think the market is, is really evolving there. Um, so I think that those are the main things. And we have to have, you know, a champion in that organization that really believes what we believe, which is that live conversation is really the cornerstone of sales and sales development. And you need to build your your training and your outreach really around that that concept if you want to get the most out of your people. Yeah, so let's let's dig down on that. So, all right, I'm outbound demand generation. This makes makes perfect sense, right? How about if I'm heavily digital, inbound lead conversion? Does this make sense for me as well? Does having a, a tool like this work, or should I just be doing emails and, and social? Yeah. So, I mean, speed, you know, time to first touch is really important. I mean, if someone comes inbound to your service, I mean, that's a, a prime time to try and get them on the phone as quickly as possible. People get so many emails these days, most of which are just templates or LinkedIn messages. And it's really hard to stand out when you're doing asynchronous, asynchronous communication like that. It's much harder to build a relationship. It's much harder to handle objections in detail and really for both sides to qualify each other quickly to ensure that it's a good fit. So some of our customers are, are just like that, right? They have a lot of inbound leads. They're having pro, you know, trouble touching them all in a, a timely fashion. And so the phone is a very effective uh, tool for doing that. Yeah, and that's one piece in your article I found interesting, right? Because one of the things that we look for from our marketing is a good return on investment. And you constantly hear the back and forth between marketing and sales and sales and marketing about, you know, marketing's pushing these opportunities over and then sales, one, don't follow up with them in a timely fashion or two won't even call them, right? And they just get colder and colder and colder and leads are like produce. They sit on the shelf, they're going bad and rotting quickly. So do you talk to me maybe a little bit about that ideal technology stack? Because I know that you're partnered with Outreach and Sales Loft. I mean, what's that ideal sales stack look like as I'm building out this sales development program? Yeah, so I think that the basics are, right, every company has to have some type of system of record. You know, typically that's going to be Salesforce because they integrate with the rest of the broader um, ecosystem. I think at this stage in the game, having some type of cadence management platform um, like, you know, an outreach or a sales loft is really important just to be able to, you know, manage and schedule the reps and make sure that they're putting the appropriate amount of touches and, you know, in addition to calls, I believe in a multi-channel outreach. So you should be doing LinkedIn, you should be doing email, but you should also be doing calls. And I think the way a lot of these cadences are designed is they might have like 15 emails and two calls because the calls are the bottleneck. Right. And 
the reality is you should be calling people, you know, multiple times, but maybe only sending them a few thoughtful, hard messages so you don't end up in the spam folder. So I think it's better just to try and get them on the phone with most of those touches. And, you know, doing conversation analysis, I think, is a good cherry on top to understand the content of the conversations. That, that really depends on your the size of your team, too, and whether you're able to monitor them directly. So I think that's um, I think that's really the basic stack. And then, of course, having data, right, whether that's, um, you know, Zoom Info or Sales Intel. Um, bigger companies, obviously, they have very advanced marketing, so they're generating a lot of their own leads, but you need to have um, great, accurate data in order to make these tools effective. But what I really think it comes down to philosophically is you want to hire world-class people to be in your sales development organization, and you want to make sure that their time is spent having quality interactions with customers and converting people that might otherwise not convert. What you don't want them doing is grunt work, listening to the phone ring, dropping voicemails, um, manually writing things out. So insofar that you can use this evolving technology to take that off your plate, their plate, you're going to have better retainment of your SDRs. They're going to become much better salespeople um, quicker. You're not going to need as many SDRs potentially. Um, so you can be more thoughtful in who you're hiring rather than just constantly adding people just to stack up your activity volume. So that's the, I think that's the, the lens in which people should, should look at this. And all of the tools and technology are cool. And kind of as my article alludes to, you know, leadership and sales management and the way that you recruit, that's all really in a separate bucket. And no tool or technology is going to save you if you don't have that side of the equation really uh, dialed in. So I think there's a lot of these kind of sales development nerds, you know, myself, included that like to nerd out on the tools, but it, you know, success really comes from, you know, the leadership and the process, you know, you put in place as a, as a manager. Yeah. And it's funny, you should say that that's the reason for the the name of our podcast, Talent, Sales and Scale, because if you don't have the right talent, uh, you know, your technology stack, all that's going to do is a really bad job amplified and much more quickly. So uh, yeah, talent's a key piece. Now, one of the things that you said is in this sales development program, developing a sales strategy. So um, the sales strategy you're recommending, if I don't oversimplify this, is really, hey, omni-channel approach, whatever it takes to have as many conversations as quickly as possible and make sure that the list is good. I mean, is it that, that straightforward? Yeah, I think it's that straightforward, but the, the caveat is that you have to make sure that the person that that customer connected is connecting with is excellent, that they're really a product expert, that they know how to handle sales objections, because that's ultimately going to determine the quality of your sales development. The tools are just enabling them to get that interaction um, yeah. And then one thing that you had mentioned in the article is is really creating, and this is long-term play here. So if you're looking for short-term solutions, uh, to use the Queen's English, there ain't one ever. Um, so really what you're talking about is creating strategic partnerships with local universities or different universities where you can get top talent coming off of it. So we all know, hey, hire the collegiate athletes. We all know those good things. However, coming out of the university, they're really challenged with sales acumen because what I found is you can get people in a conversation quickly, but that conversation will then quickly end if you're not able to hang in there from a sales acumen standpoint. So 
talk to me a little bit about how are you finding best practices of helping helping these these young folks right out of school, right out of the university, to get that sales acumen to hang in there to have those good conversations. Yeah, so it, it really does start with the recruiting. And I actually have another article coming out about this, so I can, I can speak to this a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I think the stereotype, yeah, you can hire a college athlete, um, you know, and it, it does make sense. And I've hired a lot of athletes before. They tend to have spent less time in college partying and more time, you know, working their butt off and trying to manage their schoolwork. And all those things lend itself well to the grind that is um, being an SDR, but I think that there really is an art to interviewing and recruiting. I, I guess starting off with just maybe the science side of it is I'm a big believer in using external recruiters, um, people like Bats or Lions, and making sure that you're doing 20, 30 phone screens a week. And that way you have a good sense of like what good actually sounds like, and you can start to be really, really picky about who you're hiring. And I think the second piece is having the interview skills to really pick out who is going to end up being a great sales rep. So when you're hiring an AE, it's different. You look at the last company that they worked at, you ask people that work with them if they crushed it and you know if they hit their quota. And if that's the case, they're probably going to work out for your company, assuming it's a similar market. With an SDR, it's like buying us, you know, an early stage stock. Like you don't know how they're going to turn out in two or three years. So there's some guesswork um, to do. So what I, the way I like to start off an interview is to talk about, you know, have them give me their life story and then sit back and really just listen to how they describe themselves. And I usually ask myself at the end of their life story, were they the hero in that life story? You know, were they hitting obstacles and then overcoming them? And is that how they, is that the type of person that they view themselves as? So when they come into that role as an SDR, are they the type of person where things start to get really hard, that they're going to figure it out and, you know, really try and be the number one person in the organization. And another question I almost always ask is, give me an example of a time that you've done something that's really, really hard or challenging where you came out on top or as number one. And all of the exceptional candidates that I've hired have a really great answer for that. I mean, one person that comes to mind, and um, he's a field rep now at a, at a big company, but when I hired him, he was entry level. He wanted to be a professional race car driver when he was like 16. His parents were like, no, you can't do that. He was going door to door to you know, raise money for it, ended up figuring it out, became the race car driver, became like a, won a championship. Right now he's kind of figuring out what he's going to do next. And so I'm like, this is the type of person that like when they want to do something like they're going to figure it out, they're going to do it. So I know it's a long rant, but that's, that's really, you need to have a person in the seat that is highly motivated, you know, for their own success and have that, you know, social acumen to be a great salesperson and that, that aggressiveness and, you know, from there, you need to build a training culture. And training doesn't mean like this is how you use all these different tools. Training is, you know, constantly going through objections, doing mock cold calls, uh, listening to their calls, breaking them down, really training them on the fundamentals of sales, not just how to do sales development grunt work. And I think that's where a lot of companies go wrong. They go, this is how you use the tools here's like this script, this is what you should say, but they don't really have a culture where they're, they're training on just the fundamentals of sales constantly. 
think yeah, so teams do that. Yeah. So let's let's hit on that. So from the hiring perspective, it, it seems like what you're suggesting is have a highly organized, highly systematic programmatic approach to, to be able to vet these folks, because we always joke around that, you know, you think that what you, you have Rambo on Friday and Pee Wee Herman shows up on Monday because, you know, people who like people don't necessarily make good salespeople. They make professional visitors and lots of friends, but not close anything. So you really have to know the difference between people that are extroverts, good with others, as opposed to good salespeople. There's a difference there. I also heard you say you need to drive, uh, find those with grit, whether collegiate athletes that have grit of the daily grind of of getting it done. um, That can be very disciplined on their time management, because if you come to an SDR role, you have to really know your time blocks, be effective in those time blocks, and hold those no matter what. So having that discipline equals freedom mindset. So I heard that as well. Um, leverage, and it also seemed, you don't say this, but what my gather is based upon what you said, constantly be recruiting, never relent there. So is that a good summary of the hiring side? Yeah, absolutely. I think one more point on that is I think it, there's something here that sounds obvious where it's like hire the best people. And it's like, well, duh, I was going to go hire. (laughs) Of course I was going to hire the best people. But what do people actually do, right? They, they don't put a system in place to have enough candidates come in the door. They get desperate because the AE's pipeline is empty. And they go, whatever, it's an SDR. He's just like hitting the phones and sending out emails. Just hire him. You know, if it doesn't work out, you know, we'll, we'll hire someone else. And they have sort of that lazy mindset. And when they have the wrong person in the chair, that's, there's just nothing you can do to fix that. So I think people would be surprised at how they rationalize these bad hires in their mind because they didn't prepare or, you know, really take the position as seriously as they should. Which goes to the second point that I want to amp on, which is what you're talking about is more a strategic thinking SDR, right? Because you're not talking about bant here. You're not talking about just smiling and dialing. And it seems to me what you're suggesting is finding people that can have a strategic conversation to drive deeper deeper into the, the sales pipeline. Because if we have good strategic opening conversations, um, then we can have more effective exploratory discovery calls. From those exploratory discovery calls, we can have more effective pipeline management whenever the demo comes in and we're problem solving the whole entire way, which allows shorter sales cycle, which really starts off at the very top is an effective initial conversation. Believe it or not, my belief, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, allows for a shorter cycle time to close or at least get a no. Um, but if it's going to be a no and NO, at least I K and OW, I know pretty darn quickly. Is that kind of what you're suggesting here? Yeah. And it's, it's also about the long term. You know, companies aren't built in two years. They're built in 10 years, 20 years. And insofar that you're hiring someone with the idea that they're going to stay at your company for five or 10 years, they have to go beyond the SDR position. They have to be that top field rep. They might be an SDR leader. They might go into another department in your company. So, you know, you want to hire people, you know, this isn't like you have your company where you have a bunch of, you know, smart Google engineers. And then there's this call center that's like an offshoot of it where those people don't really matter. They're employees at the company and you need to hire people that are talented enough to, to scale with it, even beyond, you know, the SDR position. So it's really just looking, it's the same bar that you would have for any other position. I just find 
when it comes to SDRs because it's an entry level role that's not technical. People, they, I think, especially a technical CEO, they kind of put it aside as like, well, it doesn't really matter because it's a grunt work job. And then they bring low quality people into their organization and other places they wouldn't do that or they wouldn't have. So what do we say to them? How do we catch their attention? Because my goodness, it's this knowledge is ubiquitous out there, but they seem to keep making the same mistake. How do we speak to that other founder, that other technical CEO, that CFO, because they're the ones that will either make or break this structure, giving that VP of sale the time to develop this, because this is not overnight. People want instantaneous results. And oftentimes, to your point, it can't happen. Now, does it sometime? Yes, you can get lucky. So let's not discount that. But for the most part, there's some heavy lifting involved. So what do we say to them, Jason? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's interesting. And, you know, in the, in the 90s, right, it was very common to have like an MBA or business founder. And then the engineers were in the back room coding the product. And, you know, after the dot-com bubble burst, you have these things like, you know, AWS and cloud computing, and you have Y Combinator where a couple engineers can start hacking together a product and scale out a business. And you have people like Andreessen Horowitz where they're specifically focused on, you know, investing in a really talented technical co-founder and then teaching them the business stuff later. So you have a lot of companies that are run by these technical engineers. And sometimes, you know, case of Facebook, Facebook, that can work out really, really well. Um, at um, Rubrik, we had a uh, business CEO, and I think that there were a lot of advantages to that. And I think people are coming around to that idea of, hey, it's not just building a great technical product. Distribution is just as important. So a lot of technical CEOs, and I'm doing a training for a VC firm in the near future, just kind of on this, they really struggle with like, all right, I have this product, I have a little bit of traction. How do I build out the business side of things. And even before you get to the SDR team, you have to think about who's going to be my first sales hire as an SDR, as a sales leader. Um, you know, what type of VP of sales should I hire? Should I hire this worldwide person from, you know, a Cisco or Microsoft, or should I hire someone who is just a rep? So they have to make all of those decisions first. And even after they've gone through all those hurdles to start building the sales organization, you have this sales development thing, which is a subsection of sales in most cases. And like that just seems like a detail that they're just going to pass off to the sales leader that they hired. And they're not really thinking about it as a fundamental engine of their company. But as the company scales out, all of a sudden they're like, you know, holy cow, there's millions of dollars being spent on this segment of my business. And by the way, as I'm going public, this is going to determine whether I hit my number or not. Right. So I think it's just one of those things that they just, they don't even know what it is right? Half the time when they're starting the company. Um, so, so can you give them a, what's that stepping stone? Because you've seen this a couple of times firsthand through rubric now with Orem, how, how would you suggest that? What's that pathway look like? I'm just starting off. It, it's, it's me, the technical founder. Um, I'm guessing, you know, let's take it. I get, I, I get funding, right? So that's going to look a little bit different than if I'm just bootstrapping. So can you maybe lay out if I'm bootstrapping versus funded? Yeah. So it's, it's not one size fits all, but I think for your typical funded VC backed company, I think that there's some sense in hiring sort of, sort of like a sales inside sales rep. That's maybe a little bit more experienced than what you would hire when you were a, a more built out company. Maybe someone was in the position for a couple of years, 
didn't get promoted, wants a shot at getting in the ground floor of a startup that can start getting you into a whole bunch of meetings, maybe even close a couple small deals, and then ultimately even build out that team. Because the problem is if you don't have any sales yet and you're just starting to build your product, what great VP of sales or, or quota carrying account executive who wants to be a leader is going to join your company when they're not sure if they're going to make money or not. Right. So you're not in a great position to hire that person. But if you can build up a whole bunch of pipeline, kind of the CEO acting as the AE with an SDR by their side, I think that's a way to build up a lot of pipeline. And then you're like, hey, Mr. VP of sales, who I heard is super talented, we have 30 sales campaigns. I'm not a salesperson. I'm not good at managing these. Can you come in and take over this process? So I think that's like a good way to kind of get the ball rolling as opposed to we don't have any sales. Um, you know, our VC knows this worldwide VP at big company XYZ. They, they're super process oriented. They're going to come in and they're going to do this. But what they really need is an executive for the next eight months that's going to close their first 20 customers. Right. So I think you need to hire for the people that you need six months or a year in front of you, not the people you think you need five years from now. And I think an inside sales rep, probably someone a little bit more experienced than average, I think is a good first uh, business hire for a technical founder. And they can do more than just cold call, right? They can set up some of these business systems, start tracking things. Usually they'll have the skill to do some of that at a basic level. Okay, so we have that. We we're, we're now working it. Um, so from there, what what's the next step? So, so what happens next? So I guess you're saying once I have your initial SDR and then you have your VP or AE that's acting as the leader. So Correct. I think I think from there, right, it really comes down to you know obviously getting your first sales down. Um, but then you know hopefully those two people are the seeds in the organization that can go out and recruit. So I think what you're looking for in that first VP of sales for a seed stage startup is maybe someone who is a frontline manager that was recently closing, but has, you know, has some experience managing people, but really wants a shot at, you know, running it, you know, all of them themselves or someone that's a very high level individual contributor who maybe has been in the field for six or seven years that has a really strong network and the respect of their peers so they can start to bring in people that are really good. Because, you know, the, the great thing, you know, for me at Orem is, you know, I've trained, you know, and recruited probably over a hundred sales reps in my career at this point. And they're not all at the company that I used to work at. They're spread out all over the industry. And so I know who's good. I can call a few of their friends say, hey, is that person still good? Where are they in their life? And then I can bring them on board rapidly. And when I do, you know, they have respect for me. They know how I manage. And so you want to bring on someone like that who can go out and close as an individual contributor, but has enough umph to also get people to follow them. Got it. So really what you're looking for there then is as you as you look for this VP of sales, it's not necessarily... Um, only the technical ability from a sales perspective is not only the management uh, perspective, but also their network. How have they? How have they led others? Do they still have that network of people that they can tap to grow a little bit more quickly? So that's a pretty interesting point. Now, yeah, you can't raise the sales number unless you add people, and if you don't have someone that has the ability to rapidly add really great sales reps you're never going to get the kind of trajectory that a series A or series B investor really wants, which is a rapid revenue growth. You can't do that if you just have one or two reps. You need to have a plan to scale it out. 
Yeah, 100%. Okay. So now how much should these people know about um, how to how to build this thing from whole cloth? Are you counting on this inside salesperson, the seasoned inside salesperson to really build out the systems and the processes and then the VP to kind of tweak it? Or are these people just really good at sales and management and leadership and you're bringing other people in? I mean, what's what's your sense of the best approach there? So, so absolutely, this, this VP of sales archetype in a startup, like you want them to be a great natural leader. But as I mentioned in the article, almost fundamentally, they're likely disconnected from modern sales development and inside sales. If they've been in the field carrying a bag for the past six years, or they're a frontline manager for a bunch of AEs, they're not really thinking, the, the SDR team has not been on their mind for a long time. And insofar that they're now now stopping in, you know, or dropping into like a, a top line leader role, they're not just responsible for an AE team; they're responsible for the entire revenue team. And so, I think it's important for the CEO to really look at this problem with their VP of Sales and go, "How do we think of a sales development team from first principles? How do we align this to the goal of our organization and our company?" And put the same kind of thought that we put into hiring great AEs or hiring great engineers into building out this SDR program? Do we want it to be a bench to recruit from for the rest of the company, right? I'm sorry, go ahead, finish that thought. Yeah, I was just saying, I think that that is, is, I think the CEO figures, because my VP of sales is a sales expert, they must already have a plan for that. And I have enough things to think about. So just take care of that side of the business. Yeah. And the curious thing is a lot of times salespeople, these VP of sales, now this is, this is stereotypes. So don't, don't take this as, as, you know, gospel or anything like that. But a lot of times they're good with good salespeople aren't, aren't very good technically. They aren't very good with detail. They're very big picture, quick decision maker, high risk takers. Let's just go. Where does a rev ops person come into play? Because of how important this, this technology stack is, do we, do we maybe not have that VP of sales and have a, a rev ops person in this new technology uh, environment in which we, we find ourselves? I mean, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, you know, the job of a VP of sales isn't to be, you know, an ops operational kind of nerd, so to speak, when it comes to, I think that's a different job. I think, you know, VP of sales, you want them to have charisma. You want them to be great in front of customers. You want them to be the people that are inspiring other people to join your company. I think a very common argument that happens early on in companies is people start to go, hey, we need an ops person. You know, this is going to be best. We need an ops person. And it's very hard to justify that in an early stage company because for every account executive I add, I can add another chunk of quota and project my revenue going up. And an operations person is an overlay. Right. It's just another expense, you know, for the business. So I think hiring, you know, taking the dive and hiring those types of people early can really help avoid a lot of problems later on. I think it's it's a hard thing to justify, but um, we did it at our company and it's we were kind of blown away by how much was taken off of everyone's plate. But I, I don't think you should conflate like because there's all this tools and technology, therefore I have to hire this very technical VP of sales. Someone can only be good at so many things. And I don't think that that's fundamental uh, to that role. I think when you're a really, really large company, I think 
a head of worldwide sales, like they need to have a certain operational skill set because the problems you're facing at that stage are much different than recruiting and getting your first deals. It's really about territory planning, um, you know, cost efficiency models, those types of things they have to have a sense of and be familiar with. But the job of VP of sales isn't to optimize Salesforce, and you're not going to get someone who is great at both of those things, most likely. Yeah, and that's what kind of made me think of it, because especially whenever you're looking at an Orem or a, an Outmatch or a, what, whatever the case may be, your, your list management, the cleanliness of that list, it's, it is insane how difficult a lot of that can be. So that's where I was thinking. I mean, and you could probably even outsource that. I know of an, a couple of different outsourced uh, sales revs, uh, rev top. Now, is there an ever, ever a time that you outsource that sales rev or outsource do a fractional VPS sales kind of thing? Have you ever seen that uh, work out well? Yeah, and we, we have an ADR service where at Orem we're doing a chunk of that for our customers. And I think on the operational side, I think early on, um, hiring some contractors is not a bad thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be a full-time person. Um, you know, the, the data, getting the right data in your system, especially when you're moving with, you know, automation tools is always a challenge. I think that's a part of the tool stack that's still evolving. It's something that our product um, helps a little bit with, right? At least one side of it. But I think there's a lot of companies that are making that uh, easier and easier. But if you have perfect data, I mean, that's really the holy grail. That's what everyone's working towards. Yeah. Perfect data with a perfect sales team, with a perfect sales leader and the perfect recruiting. We got that, you know, that's easy, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, hey, let's, so let's, let's kind of um, keep moving on here then, you know, with all of that said, I mean, this is, Unfortunately, nothing new under the sun. It's just gaining some additional perspectives about how we can do these things because the blocking and tackling is that. It's the blocking and tackling. We need the right talent with the right systems implemented well, executed well by the sales team on a consistent basis. So, I mean, nothing new under the sun. Um, you know, I check out Orm, highly, highly, uh, I mean, it's fairly easy to use and I mean, it, it it's effective. So check it out. Um, but in addition to that, I mean, give us some some insights here, Jason. We're starting off, whether sales, whether I'm a founder, you know, you you pick. What's one business uh, challenge that you face that you that you would like to share with us of ways that we can avoid that same pain and frustration that you've had? Hmm. Have to think about that. Maybe more specific, like uh, just challenge in terms of building a startup or sales. Yeah, team. How, how about we go from a from a sales team perspective? Let's let's narrow it down there. So the biggest challenge from a from an early stage. So you're Series A still, right? Uh, seed. Oh, your seed. Okay, yeah. so from a seed stage, um, maybe a, a lesson learned from building up your sales team, whether here or at the the last place as as number twelve on the hire list. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, trying to think through, I think one of the challenges with an early stage sales team is things are moving extremely quickly. And it's really hard to balance, do I invest my time in building more process and more guide rails, or do I just spend my time getting after it, right, and trying to be in front of customers? And I think you want to use time when things are slow. That's when you need to like take a step back 
and really put in place some of those processes and, and other things. Because I think what happens to a lot of early sales leaders is they're so caught up in the drama of the deals that they really can't plan for that next phase of what things are going to look like. I think that's one of the really hard things to balance. Um, and also, I think any early employee that you hire, they're very much going to be doers. And very quickly as you grow, they have to become delegators because it's not your job to close every deal. And, you know, like like looking at their calendar, does it look like an individual contributor calendar or does it look like a manager's calendar? Right. There's a gray area that I think every early employee has to cross as they're seeding their teams. And I think that's something that, you know, the CEO has to help their employees manage through because it's it's really difficult to do that. And I think sometimes it's a letting go process too. I think, you, you know, you become the only person in the bottleneck that can be trusted with a certain task, but there's no way that you can free up your time to do the recruiting and managing that you need to do if you're doing all of that yourself. So I think that's one of the big things. And I think there's a parallel to that in startups as a whole is that when you're growing really quickly, your earliest employees, I mean, every six months to a year, their role almost has to be a different role. Like they're going to grow out of what they're doing and you have to figure out how to take your early employees, which are arguably you know, the most valuable people in your business and make sure that they're positioned to be really successful and high impact. And I think that a lot of startups have growing pains with that, where they're trying to hire executives to solve their problems. They're not sure what to do with the early employees in the business and sort of figuring that out that puzzle so you can bring those new talented people in and the people that were core to your business in the beginning and get them to work together in a productive way. I think those are the things that you know, ultimately determine your culture and, and your success. So it seems like what you're suggesting then is much like you bring a strategy to your sales development efforts, bring a strategy to your talent development efforts. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that you're structuring your business over time, communicating to your employees that things are going to change because startups are not a steady state business where, hey, you're a sales manager and you're running a 16 person team for five years it's, you know, things are going to be, you know, different every few months and sounds silly, but that can be very uh, difficult and emotional for people to adapt to. And so making sure everyone's in the right position at the right time, right, that they're refreshing their goals, they're not doing the same things that they were doing when you were in 10 employees, when you're 30 employees. Right. I think that those are some of the the hard things that you have to, to figure out as a leader. Yeah, and I, I think this goes a lot to what you were saying before, where you're thinking six months a year in advance. What are the roles, responsibilities that they're going to be doing six months a year from now? And, and what's generic now, those six things that they're doing, those four to six things that they're doing now might branch off into a, a more specialized four to six things. And those might branch off into a more specialized four to six things. And we need people to backfill to take over those other roles and responsibilities. So if we can forecast that and think that ahead and stay, whenever I was flying airplanes, it was called, you know, being ahead of the aircraft, right? If you're hanging on by the tail of the aircraft, you're, you're, you're going to die. So you have to always be ahead of the airplane. You have to always be ahead of the business is what it seems you're saying. Yeah, what percentage of my day could be done by other people and what percentage of my day needs to be done by me? And I think that 
the early people in a startup, the CEO included, they they forget to revisit that question. And yeah. they are becoming a bottleneck in various processes in the business. So I think that's one of the things that you always have to be on top of. Well, any business hack or suggestion and around that topic that you that you might suggest? I mean, have you learned school of hard knocks or have you figured this one out yet? Yeah, I mean, like a, a common one and, you know, one I, I was guilty of was I was really focused on managing down. Okay. And, you know, because it was, you know, myself and the CEO and then just my team under me. And as time went on, I didn't realize how much managing I had to do up. You know, like if I want a new tool, I need to be thinking about how do I justify that to the business? If I want extra headcount, I need to be thinking about how do I justify that for the business? If I need to rearrange people's quotas, you know, I need to figure out how to to navigate that within an organization. So I think the top line leaders, it's their job to be coaching, you know, their frontline managers on how to think about that and navigate that and spend their time. Um, Because that's something that can very quickly change for an individual who has a bunch of people under and feels like they're killing it. And then all of a sudden, it's like they don't have their act together in this other area that just emerged. Yeah. So, and so that, that's the difference between, to your point, being a doer and an executive, really, really stepping up to the plate. Got it. Okay. Well, Hey, any, any resources that you might re- that you might recommend, whether books or podcasts or different guides other than reading your blog post on how to do all of this stuff? Yeah. And I, everyone asked me like, what sales books do you like? So, I mean, I, I've read all of the, you know, the typical like challenger sale and a lot of the stuff that's out there. I mean, for me, like, I'm always reading stuff, but I like to read stuff about history and about economics and, you know, just broader things that help me identify with different types of people um, and just understand leadership um, more generally. I think when you, you know, you've been in sales for a while, you, you tend to kind of learn all the different tricks that pop up there. And I have folks on my team like Colin and Terry that are really sales development experts, and I'm always learning from them, what some of the latest stuff is. Um, so that's, that's the way I think about just the self-education in the sales space. There's a lot of stuff on LinkedIn, um, you know, that people are posting. Some of it I agree with, some of it I don't. Um, but you really, I think in sales, you learn from really good mentors and you learn by doing it. I think that those are the primary sources of most of my knowledge as I've gone throughout my career. So who's, what's your history or what's your economic source? Oh, I like, um, one that the CEO of Rubrik had recommended to me a long time ago, which I love, is uh, Genghis Khan by Jack Weatherford. Okay. It's about how Genghis Khan basically came from complete obscurity in the middle of the desert as a bastard child and then ended up conquering, you know, the entire world and sort of all of the lessons and things that he did differently, you know, from other leaders to get him to where he was. I mean, stuff like that. It's not directly relatable to sales, but it's just an interesting take on human behavior and you know, the way people interact with each other. Well, you bring up a good point. I mean, for, for people to be well-rounded, for them to keep moving up, you can't just look at one one discipline. You have to look at all of them. And, and it's so funny how it, once you learn one discipline really well, my sense is you're probably seeing business business ideas out of the book. You're seeing sales ideas out of the books. You're seeing operational ideas out of the book. I mean, you can start to pull all these pieces together. So I think that's really sound advice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It makes life more fun to you rather than reading about sales development for 10 years. 
you can act out of that, right? Exactly. So, hey, uh, pull out your magic eight ball if you wouldn't mind, Jason. Uh, you know, what's the future hold? What's going to bite us in the butt if we're not we're not paying attention to it? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to to sales development in particular and sales, there really is a revolution going on around digital transformation. I mean, you have big public companies that are worth $5 billion plus that are spending half of their revenue on sales and marketing. And as I mentioned earlier, that money is not being spent on, you know, quality interactions with their customers. It's spent on process, grunt work, things that can be automated by machines. And so that's really the market opportunity for these next generation tools. So I think that technology is going to be replacing things that people may not have thought were totally replaceable. And, you know, people are going to be able to do a lot more with less resources. And on the flip side, I think you're going to start to see the real art of sales come back because the people that are going to be valuable in the future from a sales perspective are going to be the really authentic leaders and the people that are really trustworthy and great in front of customers. And I think that will be valued higher than someone that's just all into the technology, right? Because I think this stuff is going to be turnkey um, at some point. So that's where I see it going. It's, it's becoming more human in a certain way, but at the same time, I think there's going to be software in the background that's going to get rid of this like farm of people doing repetitive tasks, like you know, people putting caps on a toothpaste in an assembly line or something like that. I think that's the industrial revolution that's happening for knowledge workers. Yeah, well, and and it, how many times do we do we need to hear about this? I mean, you yourself are, are a case in point up from the ranks of an SDR running a show at your own startup. I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive. I mean, if we look at whether it's Malcolm Gladwell or we look at uh, Daniel Pink's to sell as human, these human relationship skills, the ability to communicate quickly are, are vital. And where else can you get better practice at this than having hundreds of conversations per, per week um, with people that don't want to talk to you and you learn how to quickly engage them, have conversations with them, lead with influence because you can't lead with title, that you can use anywhere along the lines. And there's some pretty smart people that are that are doing this. This, this is not um, if you're just good with people. So I really like that, Jason. So, hey, I, I can't thank you enough for your time here, Jason. So let's wind it down. I mean, who should reach out to you, Jason? Why should they do it? And how should they reach out to you? Yeah, so you should reach out to me if you're a leader of a sales organization, sales development organization, or a company, and you're looking to really automate your sales process and kind of get advice on how to take things to the next level. Um, you know, pretty much all the executives on my team in the business side, we've all built and scaled sales development teams before, and we have a brilliant engineering team that's building software to solve all of the hardest, you know, problems in sales. I mean, the thing I think that makes us different is we're not saying, hey, we're this platform to manage your employees. We're building technology that actually does the hard parts of sales development for you and thereby you know, saving you a tremendous amount of money that you would put into hiring people to do this grunt work. So um, I think that's the, the best reason to reach out to me is for us to show, show you how you know, we've helped customers do that in the past. Nice. Well, hey, Jason, I can't thank you enough for, for what you're doing out there, your insights that you've shared with us today. So on, happy Thanksgiving is just about coming up here. So uh, 
by the time you'll get the, or by the time this releases, you'll have uh, woken up from your Thanksgiving slumber and we might even be in the new year. So happy 2021 to you all. So, hey, this is Brian Whittington with this episode of the Talent Sales and Scale Show. Get after it. See you.